Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. My grandmother wrote short letters in her looping cursive that went a little crooked on the page. Each one made me ache to be home. This program features the work of 2014 writer Margot Kahn. She discussed her work with curator Felicia Gonzalez. In your own family, based on these stories that you've been talking about and you've been writing, why do you think there's a need for mythology? I don't know if it's so much a need as it is just a reality. I think that we ground ourselves so much in story. But since you put it that way, I've always been sort of in love with mythology, started with a love of Greek mythology. I just loved reading those stories of all of those characters who had these interesting powers and faults and very complex relationships with one another. That's how we learn to be in the world with other people, is through story, at least how I've learned to be in the world, what it is to be in complex relationships and what it is to have faults and either overcome them or just deal with them and to understand other people's faults and be compassionate and understanding. So I feel like in order to make sense of our own family, stories, our own family histories, there's almost inherently a bit of mythologizing that has to go along with those stories. Now we'll hear a selection from Margot's live reading. The writing that I'm doing right now is exploring my very conflicted feelings about being Jewish and my family mythology, which for the past three generations has been so intimately tied up with the Second World War. My piece in the anthology explores my family history, but the piece I'm going to read tonight um, taps into my own experience, and I just thought it would be a bit more fun. Kissing the Rabbi's Son. I went to Indiana because my best friend Becky was going. She said it would be fun, and I was the follower type. We were 11 years old, and neither of us had been to overnight camp before. She billed it as an adventure. Becky's dad drove us west through five hours of cornfields to Zionsville, Indiana, where in the middle of July, you can close your eyes and imagine you're in a steam room. We were only coming from Ohio, but in my memory, it is even muggier in Indiana, even flatter. The air is thicker and more oppressive. Ohio at least shares a border with Pennsylvania, a place people actually know. Indiana is surrounded by Ohio, Kentucky, Missouri, Illinois. It is officially nowhere. The Goldman Union Camp Institute was founded in 1958 for Midwestern Jewish kids. It's called Gucci for short. Yes, like the luxury goods. <laughs> A name spoken with camp pride and an audible undercurrent of irony. A bunch of Jewish American princesses spending the summer at Gucci. It always made me uncomfortable. While my other friends spent summers riding horses and doing arts and crafts, 
I was self-selecting to sing Hebrew songs and obey the Sabbath, things I didn't even do at home. We had free swim every day, and we did arts and crafts too, but all with some sort of Jewish theme. As Becky's dad helped us settle in, I felt like a little skiff whose rope had not been tied properly to the cleat and was gently, silently bobbing away from the dock. There was an immediate feeling of inclusion at Gucci. We were all Jewish, but my non-Jewish friends couldn't come here, which felt exclusive. Should that be a point of pride or embarrassment? I was too insecure to know. And of course, the insecurity didn't stop there. Camp was divided into three age groups, and within each age group, there were one or two cabins of boys and girls. Becky and I were the youngest of the middle group. In other words, nothing in the middle of nothing, like Indiana. We still had baby fat, terrible glasses, and bad hair. In the bathhouse, we had ample opportunity to see the older girls who knew how to shave. They had perfect breasts and long hair, and they washed themselves like they weren't embarrassed about any of it. I was terribly embarrassed. I didn't know how to shave. My breasts felt like they were the wrong size, shape, and color. I had the haircut of a poodle. Our own dark cabin harbored 12 girls in various stages of awkwardness and two counselors who had a semi-private section in the back. Our counselors, tall, cool, distant Sharon from Israel and peppy Midwestern Andrea, shepherded us from meals to activities, arts and crafts, swimming, Jewish studies, and the outdoor temple where we had all camp meetings and Friday night Shabbat <coughs> services. One stiflingly hot afternoon, we went to find Andrea during rest hour. A sarong hung in the doorway of the back room, and the sun snuck in where the billowy fabric fluttered away from the frame. A fan pointed at the bunk beds, pushed hot air around. We found Andrea asleep, naked. The shock of her pubic hair catching what little breeze the fan made struck us all dumb. I waited almost desperately for the mail to arrive each day, for the moment of happy melancholy I could have alone in my bottom bunk as I read letters from home, crying a little to myself. My mother and father wrote to me separately, my mother's letters full of news and questions, my father's full of thoughts about self-reliance and learning to live with others, alongside detailed, somewhat romantic reports on the weather heat that was particularly good for the zinnias, quenching thunderstorms. My grandmother wrote short letters in her looping cursive that went a little crooked on the page. Each one made me ache to be home. I longed for my closet with clean shelves and a bed that didn't sag or squeak. I wanted a shower all to myself, a warm bathroom free of spiders. <laughs> One sunny, muggy afternoon, we were visited by a troupe of Israeli performers from a kibbutz somewhere. They must have been in their 20s, maybe even their late teens. Their English wasn't good, and they didn't seem to be interested in us at all, so we didn't talk to them. But we watched them in and around the dining hall, talking to each other and laughing, as if they were jaguars, <coughs> beautiful creatures from a very different world. Their performance was to be on a grassy lawn outside the main hall, 
and we were told to wait there for whatever was to happen next. As we walked out, we saw the performers were there too, not preparing for anything, just lounging in the grass. They lay this way and that, their bodies loose and comfortable. They sat close to each other, even the women. Some rested an arm, a leg, a cheek on the person next to them. They touched each other casually. They kissed. At the center of the group, a woman sat with her legs outstretched in a wide V. And between her legs, a man was lying on his stomach, his head pushed between her legs, his arms draped over her thighs and wrapped behind her, his hands holding her sacrum. I thought he looked comfortable, comforted. It wasn't polite to stare, but I couldn't help myself. Was he smelling her? Was it pleasurable for him, I wondered? I stood there in my baggy t-shirt and pleated shorts, feeling like a fat monkey, an orangutan maybe. The woman looked down at him and stroked his dark curls, then tipped her head back and leaned into her hands. He pulled himself into her. Her hair was wild. She was full of pleasure. I was hot and struck dumb, slick with sweat and burning for that feeling between my legs. Whatever I might have learned from camp about my cultural history paled in comparison to that image. <laughs> if being Jewish meant my curly brown hair could be beautiful in all its unkempt glory, and a man would pull himself between my legs with deep affection and ease, I wanted in. Was all of Israel this sexy, or all Jews? Was this really my birthright? I had never felt so lucky in all my life. And then, after what felt like an interminable month of longing, it was time to go home, back through the cornfields to our quiet suburb, shaded by giant old elms and sugar maples. The sad memories of camp fell away like a shed skin. We were different girls now. I had learned how to shave my legs and armpits from our precocious cabin mate, Lydia. I had learned how to insert tampons with applicators made to smell like the petals of a mysterious flower. And I had just proved to myself that I could spend a whole month on my own. I had been lonely and sometimes achingly sad, but I survived. And I had seen a possible future vision of myself in those girls in the bathhouse, those Israelis on the lawn. I would never have long, straight, blonde hair, but I might be sexy in my own right, maybe in a few years. Our second summer at camp was like a reversal of fortune, thanks in large part to our boobs. <laughs> Sprightly and pale, you could hold them perfectly in the palm of your hand. Our hair was still bad, but we had better haircuts. We had added braces, but lost the glasses in favor of contact lenses. We were a little taller, a little wiser. And just like that, on the first day of camp, there was Jonah, the rabbi's son. Everyone thought he was so cute, and he was looking right at me. Jonah wasn't Israeli, he was Canadian, but he was still foreign. <laughs> His eyes sparkled with mischief. He was shorter than me and had a raspy voice, a quick cackling laugh. He was lighthearted and funny, always cracking a joke, but earnest and kind. Everyone liked him. After several days of whispers and messages sent between friends at the dining hall, Jonah approached me for a real conversation. 
We sat next to each other at an all-camp event and made some kind of agreement to be boyfriend and girlfriend, as you did in middle school. We held hands. And after that, camp was like a new country. With this little love, a new confidence blossomed, a deeper acceptance, a more acute sense of belonging. I sang with all my breath. I danced and swam. I let someone take my picture in a borrowed bikini. I walked around like a water goddess, urn balanced on my head. Jonah and I thought it would be somehow significant to wait until Shabbat to share our first kiss. <laughs> the whole aspect of our Jewishness was accentuated in our pairing, as if part of the point of Jewish summer camp experience was to kindle the fire of finding a Jewish partner. Zionism, after all, opposed assimilation. We were here to take pride in our Jewish identity, and if a natural offshoot of this self-identification led us into a Jewish partnership, our parents would certainly be thrilled. Our counselors conveniently arranged for our cabins to enjoy a night together, camping in tents in the woods that coming Friday. Stealing away into the trees sometime after dark, the saliva we exchanged took on a singularly religious vibe. <laughs> just as the camp's little outdoor temple, just some rows of benches and a podium surrounded by trees, was somehow sacred, this stretch of forest became a holy place because we were in it together. Our feet grounded at the root of a tree, bark rough against my back, and sweet Jonah's skinny hands laced in mine. It was awkward, blessed, messy, ascendant. We consecrated ourselves with a kiss, and suddenly I went under. Love became all mixed up with ritual, religion, blessings, and songs. The rest of the month floated by, all saliva and sweaty palms, and when it was time to go home, our parting was just as bittersweet as any romance in the history of summer camp. <laughs> he called the moment his plane landed in Toronto, and then our communication tapered off until we were back to our usual lives in our respective cities. We said we might visit each other, but of course we never did. I returned to camp for one more year, and Jonah was not there. After that, I found other activities that spoke to me more than the Hebrew sing-along. My new adventures took me deeper into forests and higher into the mountains, activities where, although I didn't meet many Jewish boys, I did find deep wells of strength and peace. Almost two decades after Jonah, I fell in love with a man who, when I first laid eyes on him, was wearing a heavy backpack and held an ice axe in his hand. <laughs> he was not Jewish, but when he draped his body across mine, I remembered that Israeli couple. He made me feel languid and beautiful, intrepid, strong. Together, we had an ease, a sense of belonging, and religion, we understood together, was just above tree line where we found ourselves again and again in awe and wonder, tethered to everything. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2014 curator of this program is Felicia Gonzalez. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are C.J. Lazenby, Tom Stiles, Mo Preventure, and Steve DeTori. Narrator is Jen Hammond. 
and executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by two trios with Victor Noriega, Jeff Johnson, and Greg Campbell, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Fort Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.